0: Let's pray together. Our Father, we were just reminded of the glorious truth expressed in your gospel that none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Lord, what would be our hope if that was not true? We would be of all people most miserable. The things of this life cannot satisfy And the things beyond the grave only terrify. But the Lord Jesus Christ has taken our terror that he might be our satisfaction. And therefore we pray in his name that you would come and, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, visit this place of worship this day. We pray that the gales of your gracious spirit would blow in this place, that saint and sinner alike would be made captive to the teaching of the word, We would hear the voice of the ascended Christ through the written word that we would come to faith in him or from faith to faith, even as we've already prayed from one level of of grace unto another. So Lord, leave us not to ourselves in this hour. Bow the heavens and come down, ride upon the cherub and fly. Come into this place. Do what only you can do in bringing sinners to yourself and in building your people up in the most holy faith. Might we see Jesus this day with the eyes of faith and go home glorying that you have met with us through him by his spirit, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Imagine, if you would, a world into which Jesus never came. A world without a bloody cross and an empty tomb. A world filled with sinners, but a world without a savior. Such would be a world with only fleeting, but no true happiness. A world without a blessed hope hereafter. But Jesus has come into this world. His bloody cross and his empty tomb preach a message of happiness and hope for sinners today and forever. This morning I wish to introduce our Lord's parables of the lost and found in Luke chapter 15. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning with me to Luke chapter 15. We've finished the seven kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, and now we're moving ahead and parking ourselves for a little while in the 15th chapter of Luke. And we have three parables. Jesus speaks of all three. Is only one parable. Follow with me as I read the first three verses. Now all the tax er, gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable saying, and we have the parable of the lost sheep, followed by the parable of the lost coin. And this section concludes with the parable of the lost son. Well, what I wish to do today is to is to prepare us for those parables by considering the context. I'm simply going to seek to acquaint us briefly with Jesus' audience and with the Savior himself. Verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We're going to consider these two verses under three headings. We're going to look at the approaching sinners. We're going to look at the reproaching scorners. And we're going to look at our approachable Savior. So we're going to consider Jesus seekers, Jesus censors, and the Savior himself. Notice, first of all, the approaching sinners, those who came to Jesus seeking him. We're going to look first of all at their identity, and then we're going to look at their interest, their identity. Who was it that was coming near to Jesus? What kind of people approached our Lord to hear him? Well, Luke cites two classes of folks in particular that came to hear and to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're introduced, first of all, to the tax gatherers. Now, what do we know about the tax collectors there in first century Israel? Well, not surprisingly, like anywhere and at any time, these tax collectors were not well liked in Israel and and that especially for two reasons. First of all, their livelihood involved collecting taxes. They levied taxes on goods both coming in to and those that are leaving their country, as well as taxing the local populace. And what is worse is that their occupation was infamous for its graft and corruption. Not only did these tax collectors take money for the, for the Roman government, but they also took money to line their own palms and to fill their pockets. See, these tax collectors were especially obnoxious. They were known for their graft and corruption. Secondly, was their collaboration with the occupying Romans. This made them especially offensive to Israelites. Not surprisingly, tax collectors were regarded not only as crooks, but also as traitors. They sold out the the nation of Israel to these Roman occupiers and they made money doing it. And for this reason, tax collectors who came to John the Baptist for the the baptism of repentance were counseled Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. If you want to show the fruits of repentance, don't take any more than you are required to do. Quit stealing from the people. Now, let me just say that it's not working for the IRS that that keeps one out of the kingdom of God. It's stealing that keeps one out of the kingdom. An honest tax collector though we might have been odious to the jews had a lawful occupation and indeed if we are truly repentant ourselves we will not steal from the government as we're required by the apostle paul by jesus himself through the apostle we are to pay our taxes even if it grinds our socks we are to do so faithfully and honestly. Now, it's worth noting that Jesus chose a tax collector to be one of his apostles. We know him as Matthew or as Levi. When Matthew was called by Jesus to leave his tax booth and follow him, it appears that he threw a retirement party He invited other tax collectors and his friends, those that were on the other side of the tracks, we might say, to come that they might meet Jesus, the one who had called him away from his tax booth. And Luke records the event, Luke chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And he, that is Levi or Matthew, left everything behind. It's interesting when Matthew gives his account, he doesn't say it quite like that. Matthew's a little more humble. He got up and left. But Luke says that he left everything behind. He left his lucrative business to leave and to follow the Lord. And rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him, that is for Jesus, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And so here, Matthew invites all of his cronies to introduce them to Jesus Christ, the one who had come and called him. Now, let's fast forward to chapter 15, the present scene before us. Tax gatherers were included in the crowd that came to hear Jesus. And as I was putting this message together, it just made me wonder, Did Matthew recognize among those faces that he saw out in the crowd that came to hear Jesus any of his former colleagues? Were they sensing their own emptiness? Was the gospel seed that had been planted in their hearts at Levi's retirement party beginning to sprout? Were they sensing sorrow for their sin? Were they seeking forgiveness? Were they looking for true riches that Matthew had found in Jesus Christ? Did they come to hear the words that Matthew had responded to, even to hear his Savior speak? Well, evidently they were seeking Jesus. That's very plain from Matthew chapter, or Luke chapter 15. But what did they hope to find? Well, before answering that question, let's consider the second group here. And that is the sinners. Now, who were these sinners that came to hear Jesus? And why does Luke label them sinners when Luke knew that all people, including tax collectors, and even the righteous scribes and Pharisees were sinners? Why does he single out this particular group of people? For doesn't the Bible teach that there is none righteous? No, not one that all come short of the glory of God? Isn't it a given that only sinners came to hear Jesus since all men are sinners? Indeed, who else could come and hear Jesus but sinners? So that's a good question, and I think it's a very thoughtful one. It helps us to understand the identity of those who truly seek Jesus. So who are they? Well, I'd like you have to notice two things about these sinners that came to hear the Savior. First of all, these who came to hear Jesus were regarded by the general population of Israel as sinners, sneeringly referred to as sinners. You see, members of polite Jewish society, including religious Jews, they looked down upon such persons as lowlife, since such persons displayed a flagrant disregard for the law of God, especially the law regarding moral chastity. And this is clear from Luke's description of the woman of the streets who lavished penitential love upon Jesus after experiencing his forgiving mercy. Simon, you remember, described her as a sinner. Second, and more importantly, these who came to hear Jesus regarded themselves as sinners. They agreed with the assessment of others. Many were like the publican in the temple who sought God's mercy. God be merciful to me, the sinner. But even more importantly, these sinners who sought Jesus, agreed with Jesus' assessment of them as sinners. They were anxious to hear from the Lord how to remedy their sin problem. And like those who crowded into Levi's house to meet Jesus, they perked up their ears when he offered salvation to such people as themselves. Matthew records Jesus' gracious word to the sinners that day. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. And it happened that as he was reclining reclining at the table in the house, this is back at Matthew's house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. They were having a party. They were all reclining. They were enjoying good food. You can hear the chatter going on all around. But then there's those that were there, that didn't have the heart of Matthew. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to to his disciples, they didn't say it to Jesus here, they said it to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? Why is he enjoying such familiarity with this kind of people? But when he, the Lord Jesus, of course, heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I want you to go back to your Bibles and I want you to read them with your eyes open. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm going to be of no help to you until you realize that you're in the same boat with these people that live on this side of the tracks. You see, these sinners didn't allow their rejection by polite Jewish society to keep them from seeking the friend of sinners. They were much like the wounded man in Jesus' parable, of the good Samaritan. He's laying there bleeding, left for dead. And on one side of him passes a priest, and on the other side passes a Levite. And neither one of them stopped to help him. And that is a picture of the sinners, the reception they received by their fellow Israelites. Nobody would stop to help, but Jesus came to help. You see, their sense of destitution and depravity drove them to him. And because the leaders of the church of their day offered them no remedy. See, all they offered them was a self-righteousness kit to try to make themselves acceptable to God. So they came for help to Jesus, who says right there, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Notice then, having seen their identity, these tax gatherers and sinners, their interest. These tax gatherers and sinners opened up their ears to hear Jesus. Now, we aren't first introduced to them in chapter 15. Didn't have time to read chapter 14, but Luke sets the stage for chapter 15 in his contrast with the scribes and the Pharisees, In chapter 14, chapter 14 opens with Jesus being invited to a banquet in the house of a Pharisee who set a trap for him with his cronies to see if he would heal this ailing man that was probably a plant put there. And in healing him, Jesus asserted to his hostile audience that if they cared for their own farm animals, Surely he must be free to care for needy people. And then he teaches the parable of the banquet. And in that parable, he teaches that God humbles the proud while he exalts the humble. And from that lesson, he teaches that our kindness should be directed toward the needy, not toward our friends, but toward those who can't help us, who can't return our favor. And he reinforces that lesson with a parable of a great supper in which a man urged his servants to go out to call all those who had been invited as guests because his banquet was ready. But those who had been invited, you remember, they gave all kinds of excuses to the servants for refusing to come. They all had a good excuse for not coming to the banquet. And in response, the incensed benefactor commanded his servants to go out to the highways and the hedges and to beat the bushes and to compel all that they met to come and fill the empty seats at his banquet. After this, Jesus practically applied the parable instructing those who would be the guests at his gospel banquet about the cost of discipleship that none who came to him should begin following him thoughtlessly, lest they lose their savor and be rejected in the end. Jesus concludes this section in chapter 14 by commanding that all of his hearers give careful attention to his instruction. Notice the very last verse and the last part of the verse of chapter 14 in verse 35. He who has ears, let him hear. And seamlessly, it would seem, we go right into chapter 15. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. You see the connection. And then have you noticed that Jesus' sober warnings and his urgent exhortations, did not put off his hearers. Instead, they were drawn to him. And we just met them. But they weren't the only ones who heard Jesus teaching. Contrast then the approaching sinners with the reproaching scorners. The reproaching scorners. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners. And he eats with them. He welcomes them and he sits down and has a meal with them. He talks very plainly and openly with them. Who does this man think he is? He can't be a prophet sent from God. He wouldn't fraternize with this kind of riffraff. Well, we've met the grateful. Now let us consider the grumblers. Not all who here with their ears also here with their hearts consider their identity both the scribes and the pharisees now we meet the scribes and the pharisees throughout the gospels and as we watch them and listen to them they're always carping and complaining and criticizing the lord jesus consider just briefly with me their rap sheet notice first the pharisees pharisees were the separatists in fact Their name is derived from a Hebrew word, which means to separate. They separated themselves from the rest of of Israel. They would have been the theological conservatives in Jesus' day. Not all conservatives hear the word of God. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the popular party among the Jews. They were extremely minute in all matters pertaining to the Law of Moses, they were very exacting in things like their tithes. They would tithe 10% of their, their, their vegetables. But Jesus didn't say, well, you don't need to do that. He said, go ahead and do that, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Love and kindness and righteousness. See, there was very much that was sound about the Pharisees' creed. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in spirits. They took their Bible seriously. But yet they exalted their rabbinic traditions above the clear teaching of scripture. Their religious system proved for them to be nothing more than a form, an empty form. Furthermore, they were known for their lax morality. They weren't a chaste people. They didn't Consider marriage something to be honored. You could divorce your wife for burning your toast. Indeed, when Jesus was called to that woman caught in adultery, very likely some of them were of their stripe and had, had illicit relationships with that woman. Pharisees were known for their self-righteousness and pride. You know, as I prepare this message, it has to speak to you before I can speak it to you. And I see Pharisaic tendencies in my own life. In fact, if you're a true Christian because of remaining sin, there's a little Pharisee that's yet alive in your heart that is always grooming himself and putting himself forward. These Pharisees were frequently rebuked by our Lord And from the very beginning of his ministry, the Pharisees were his bitter and persistent enemies, often dogging his steps. You see, they could not bear Jesus' doctrines, and they sought by every means to destroy his influence among the people. Notice next, the scribes. In ancient Israel, scribes held various important offices. In the public affairs of the nation of Israel, they often acted as secretaries of state. Their business was to prepare and issue decrees in the name of the king. And there was also another, we might call second class of the scribes, most of whom were Levites. They were largely writers and copyists of scripture. Baruch, for example, Jeremiah's assistant wrote, from the mouth of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord we read. Scribes multiplied copies of the law, and they often taught it to others. And we see Ezra. Ezra was such a scribe, and he taught the people the word of God. Now, in New Testament times, scribes belonged ordinarily to the sect of the Pharisees. In the gospel, scribes and lawyers are interchangeable. But what they did is they supplemented God's law with their traditions, as we noted, which obscured and replaced God's commandments. In Jesus' day, scribes were the public teachers of the people. They often came into conflict with the Lord. In Acts, we see that they exhibited great hostility toward the apostles. Acts chapter 4 and chapter 6. Yet some scribes were not antagonistic to the gospel. Some even showed themselves friendly to Christ's disciples, even if they might not have joined themselves to them. For instance, when the Sanhedrin charged the disciples before Gamaliel with teaching in Jesus' name, he urged them not to bother them, but rather leave them alone. You know, if they're teaching of the Lord, leave them alone. If what they're teaching isn't significant, it won't come to anything, just... Leave him be. The Pharisees and scribes joined in common cause against Christ, not surprisingly. They not only hated him, they couldn't abide anyone embracing his teaching and owning him as Lord. And therefore, having seen their identity, notice, secondly, their criticism. Both the scribes or the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble And what do they say? This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this compound word translated grumble is only used here and in chapter 19 and verse 7. We read earlier, it indicates their continual carping criticism against Jesus and against those who sought him. It's not surprising that those who hate and oppose Christ hate and oppose his people. Notice, first of all, they criticize Jesus seekers. They refer to them as sinners. Merely religious people are quick to criticize those who truly seek the Lord. They have a form of godliness. They don't have its power. They have a mere name that they're alive. And when they see true, saints of God, loving the Lord and following the Lord, delighting in his commandments. It irks them because they consider themselves the religious one, but the joy of the Lord certainly isn't their strength. These self-righteous Jews demeaned Jesus' audience. We read in John 7 and verse 49, Jesus' fame is increasing. And what did the religious leaders say? But this multitude, kind of like this manna, this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. They're damned by God. They don't follow the law like we do. These religious folk regarded the tax gatherers and sinners who sought Jesus as the moral equivalent of something you wouldn't want to step in. That's how they view them. There's a couple of lessons here for us. First of all, pride and self-righteousness blind us to our own faults while we magnify the faults of others. That's why I said we got a little Pharisee in our own hearts. We'll stand and we'll preen ourselves while we put other people down. Second, those who have only an empty form of religion despise those who truly know and follow Christ. You know, those people who call themselves born-again Christians, you know, they're just a little over the top, don't you think? They can back off a little bit and still go to heaven. All this talk about wanting to please God and honor and glorify Him, you know, that's just a little bit too much. And so we'll persecute those who follow Christ and preach Christ. You remember Jesus' question to Saul. Christ calls to Saul from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, the enemies of Christ persecute Christ through persecuting his people. They can't touch him, so they go after those who follow him. So they criticize Jesus' seekers, and notice they criticize the Savior. This man receives sinners and eats with him. Literally, this one. You see that they refer to Jesus with a pronoun, instead of by his name or by his titles, displays a contemptuous sneer on their part. And we see this in other places. Matthew 12 and verse 24. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They, they didn't say Jesus. They said this man. Mark 2 and verse 7. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this person think he is? Luke 7 and verse 39. You remember Simon says under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She's a sinner. You see, cultivated Jewish society offered no hope for its outcasts. They couldn't go to them for spiritual help. And yet they hated Jesus because he dared to fraternize with those that they rejected. He receives. he welcomes them literally. And he sits down and he eats with them. They weren't doing their job. Maybe they had a guilty conscience that they weren't gaining disciples like Jesus was gaining. You remember they envied Jesus. That's why they put him on the cross we tend to envy those and think evil of them that are doing what we should be doing. The, Chi- uh, the Hamiltons over in China, they were persecuted by the Chinese because this non-government organization comes over there and is reaching out to their people on the streets, that little kids searching through garbage piles for something to eat. The Hamiltons come from America over there and they take them in They provide them food and clothing and shelter and teach them. The Chinese just, they couldn't abide that. Because they were doing for, Annie and Rebecca were doing for their people what they should have been doing for them. And so they were hated. Jesus critics, you see, they were blind to the pedigree of this one who had come from heaven. This one who stooped so low to befriend needy sinners. Luke 7 and verse 34. The son of man, this one is spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. This one who's the son of the ancient of days. The son of man has come eating and drinking. It's what he came to do. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, this, who's a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. You see, they had no room in their theology for a gracious redeemer. And that's what Jesus was. That's what he is. And so I restate my original question: What hope would we have if Jesus were not the friend of sinners? If he did not seek us and bring us to his gracious banquet? Banquet, brethren, it is none other than the Lord of glory who left heaven, who makes his abode with us. He is God incarnate. It's him. This one who invites and welcomes every penitent sinner who comes to him. Mere man wouldn't stoop to help them, but God stoops to help them. That's that's the contrast here. He makes his abode with us. He invites us. He welcomes us to come to him. Oh, if we had never tasted and perished in our sin. The charge that Jesus is the friend of sinners was a sneer on the lips of these religious people, but it's music to the ear of every redeemed sinner. How wrong, how foolish were Jesus' critics? He dined with deplorables. And that he did so, they thought, suggested that he approved of their sin. Not so. He didn't come to encourage them in their sin. He came to save them from their sin. You see, wisdom, Jesus says, is vindicated in her children. You see, he ate with them that they might feed in faith upon him. And the practical impact of Jesus' message proves that he came not to save men in their sin, but from their sin. Penitent sinners run from their sin into the welcoming arms of Jesus, their Savior. Jesus' critics were the proverbial dog in the manger. My parents used to say to us kids sometimes, you're the dog in the manger. Well, What does that mean? Well, you're like that dog in the manger. He's sitting there in the feed trough on top of the hay. He doesn't want to eat the hay, but he doesn't want the sheep to have it either. And that's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees were. They refused to receive Christ themselves and they would keep all others from receiving him too. Matthew 23 and verse 13, Jesus castigates them. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You don't want Christ, and you don't want anybody else to have Christ. So that's the approaching sinners. And the reproaching scorners now look at the receptive Savior, the approachable Jesus. Brethren, sin is the most destructive thing in all of the universe. Sin ruins human relationships. Unforgiven sin destroys men's souls. But worst of all, sin has severed our relationship with God. And Jesus came from heaven not only to save our souls and to eventually restore peace with men. He came especially to repair the breach that sin has made between ourselves and God. He came to reconcile us to God. Sin had alienated us from God. It had broken our fellowship with God. It began in the garden and is born into the heart of every unconverted sinner. At birth, we are estranged from God. And religion can't restore us to God. Only the work of God through Jesus Christ can reconcile us, bring us back into fellowship with God. And this Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Paul speaks of it in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is something religion cannot do. Only Jesus Christ can do. You see, sinners who are who entrust their guilty souls to Christ are forgiven of their sin. They are reconciled to God. They're restored to his favor and they're made righteous before God. Now think about it. If separation from God because of sin is the root of all human misery, then restoration to his favor must be the fountain of all true happiness. Jesus preached this. He opened up Isaiah chapter 61. You'll remember there in the synagogue in his hometown. And he reads, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These sinners and tax collectors that are coming to Jesus, they're mourning over their sin. They're seeking the comfort that only God can give. You see, those to whom God gives ears to hear, they come to Jesus. They listen to him. They taste and see that God is good. They embrace Jesus by faith. They experience liberation from the guilt and bondage of sin. They enjoy the spiritual exhilaration that comes from being lost and now found, of being blind and now seeing, of once being alienated from God and now being reconciled to him, of once being dead in sin and now receiving life. From the dead. But people that don't know the Lord, they don't understand this. In fact, we who have experienced don't really understand it. But it's real. We've tasted the Lord and seen that he is good. But let me say here, we would be mistaken if we painted Jesus' word of reconciliation only in pastel hues. His message also included sterner elements of the gospel, which his critics rejected. Jesus didn't minimize the authority of God's law to make it appealing to the lawless. He upheld the law. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He didn't downplay God's demand for the holiness of his people. He didn't refer casually to sin in an attempt to avoid offending sinners. He didn't avoid teaching uncomfortable doctrines like hell and the judgment to come in an attempt to avoid upsetting his hearers. He didn't speak approvingly of this evil world out of a desire to win the worldly. He didn't enlist the half-hearted as disciples but instead required a radical commitment to count the cost to all who would follow him as Lord. You see, when God gives us ears to hear, we embrace the whole message of the cross. We not only delight in his precious promises, we also shoulder its practical duties. And those for whom Jesus is Savior, he is also Lord. Lord. You see, when God gives us ears to hear, we accept everything. The hymn writer understood this. And so disciples sing, Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Well, what about Jesus was so attractive to penitent sinners? Why were they drawn magnetically to him? Well, a number of things can be said. Jesus' preaching and teaching was received with pleasure by ordinary folks. You see, he so spoke that they could understand what he was saying. Mark 12 and verse 37. And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. I like the way the King James puts it. And the common people heard him what? Gladly. Furthermore, he spoke with original authority that commanded men's attention. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this at the end, or this is the result of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words... The multitudes were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching as one having authority and not as their scribes who were always quoting this Mishnah and that rabbi and this teacher. No, he spoke with original authority. I say by way of footnote, I think that's one reason why people that aren't wanting to meet Jesus Christ and follow him don't like authoritative preaching. Furthermore, whether instructing or exhorting, whether warning or consoling, Christ's words were received by his repentant hearers as flowing from a heart filled with grace. Luke 4:22. And they all were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. They couldn't help but run to him. We want to hear what this man has to say. He's not teaching like our religious leaders teach. So we sing while kindness in his bosom glowed and from his lips salvation flowed. In fact, even Jesus' enemies who rejected him, disregarded his teaching, were forced to acknowledge the persuasiveness of his words. John 7 and verse 46 Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Furthermore, Jesus' absolute purity didn't repel, but instead attracted awakened sinners. And this is because his blazing holiness did not scorch, but it rather warmed those who came to him. They knew that Jesus wouldn't fraternize with their sin. They knew that. Jesus' gentle dealing with sinners like the Woman taken in adultery and his evocative conversation with the carnal woman from Samaria proved magnetic. And regarding the first woman, she heard things that Jesus said about her life that didn't drive her away. Rather, she ran to the city and said, you've got to come and hear this man who told me everything that I've ever done. Furthermore, Jesus' lamb-like demeanor makes him approachable. You see, men aren't afraid of sheep. Jesus' sheep do not cower before their gracious shepherd. They gladly come to him. Finally, Jesus' readiness to receive notorious sinners and society's cast off make him attractive to the hopeless. Where can they find hope but in the arms of Christ? And though the Savior has no sympathy with our sin, yet he sympathizes with us as sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, this magnetic sympathy draws us to Christ. Let me ask you, have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from your righteousness to embrace the friend of sinners? And if not, why not? Just three words of concluding application then we'll be done. First of all, from our approachable Savior, let us learn that Jesus attracts none but sinners. Our Lord did not come to save the self-sufficient. He never saved any but those who recognize themselves to be lost and undone, who know that they cannot save themselves, who abandon all trust in their own righteousness and they run to him. Fact is, only those of a broken and a contrite spirit who are made so by the grace of God, who are weary and heavy laden, who reject their righteousness and see themselves as guilty sinners, come to Christ. All the other, you know, we don't need him. He's fine for you. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. But uh, I I don't need him. Spurgeon says, There has never been such a miracle as a self-righteous man coming to Christ for mercy. None but those who want a Savior ever did come, and therefore it would be useless for him to say that he would receive any but those who most assuredly will come. None but those can come. No man can come to Christ until he truly knows himself to be a sinner. The self-righteous man cannot come to Christ. He has to be shown for what he is before he will. This God did, if we had time to look, at a certain man named Saul who was breathing out threats and slaughters against the church. And God marvelously, and I would say miraculously saved that man, made him a trophy of his grace. And apart from Jesus, the most powerful exponent of the kingdom of God and preacher of grace that has ever lived. But I fear for some here. Perhaps you have little consciousness of your own sin. If your guilt before God, you appear to be comfortably convinced of your own goodness. And how tragic is it if I speak of you Jesus came to save sinners and none but sinners. And until you see yourself as desperately in need of a savior, you will never go to Jesus to be saved. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Secondly, from the approaching sinners, let us learn that Jesus is a willing savior. Our sin should never keep us from Jesus, however great they may be, however many they are. They should drive us to Christ. His grace is greater than all of our sin. He is readier to save us than we are to be saved. In fact, his cross teaches that. The only sin that Jesus will never forgive is an unwillingness to come to him. No believer, however sinful, will Jesus ever turn away. He receives all who come to him. He invites you. He invites you as little sinners. He invites you as scandalous sinners. He invites you as every kind of sinner to turn from your sin and to turn from your righteousness and run to him to be saved from your sin and from the wrath to come. Act on the hymn that we just sang a few minutes ago. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is able. He is willing, doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Thirdly and finally, from Jesus' censors, learn that self-righteousness will keep you from Christ. You glory in your own supposed goodness. But Jesus is glorified in saving sinners. He will not share his glory with you and know that your goodness will prove your eternal undoing. It will keep you out of heaven just as surely as your sin. In fact, your high view of yourself will sink you into the lowest depths of hell. Jesus is not the friend of the righteous, but only of sinners. And may He open your eyes to see your plight and give you feet to run to Him today. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we do pray that there would be those that would be gathered around the Lord Jesus even this day. They may not be tax collectors, but they may be some sort of sinner who sees. His desperate case, her desperate case, and needs Christ. We pray that you would open their ears to hear the gospel call. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out, but raise him up on the last day. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, bring such, we pray, to the Savior today. Lord, if there be any here that are proud of their religiosity and their supposed righteousness, have mercy upon them like you did upon that premier Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. Humble them in the dust. Grant them the gifts of faith and repentance. O oh Lord, cause the word of salvation to go far and wide throughout this world. Bring many to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are walking by faith, make Christ all the more glorious. Make their hearts pant after him. Make them, make them taste afresh and see that he is good. So Lord, hear us as we pray these things. All of these requests we ask, ultimately that your son would be glorified, your name would be hallowed, your kingdom would come, and your will would be done throughout the earth, even as it is in heaven. Amen.